Good afternoon. Thank you for that introduction, Frank. I'm pleased to be with you again to discuss the economic outlook, although I must say uh, that this uh, occasion is bittersweet because of the passing recently of Henry Faison. Henry was well known to us at the Richmond Fed. In fact, uh, Henry served as uh, chairman of the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond from 1990 to 1995, and for the last two of those years, he served as our chairman. We knew Henry as a man of drive and determination, uh, but also as a man of principle and great generosity. In addition to being an exceptionally successful entrepreneur and an outstanding charlatan, uh, Henry was also a staunch supporter of the Federal Reserve System and our quest for price stability. It's very hard to picture this wonderful annual event uh, without Henry's special charm and grace, not to mention his annual critical appraisal of the Fed's recent, most recent inflation performance. Uh, I know I'm going to miss him greatly. The economic outlook uh, is the main order of business today, though. And before I begin, I should emphasize that the views expressed will be my own and should not be attributed to anyone else in the Federal Reserve System. I'll begin with the outlook for inflation. I think Henry would want it that way. Over the last 20 years, uh, inflation's averaged 2% in the United States, 2.05% to be precise. There have been year-to-year -year fluctuations, to be sure, but these temporary swings have evened out over time, and inflation has always tended to return to around 2%. In fact, since the end of this Great Recession, inflation has averaged 2%, again, 2.01% to be precise. Although inflation was running at elevated rates a few months ago, driven up by a bulge in retail gasoline prices, energy prices have subsided of late. And with futures markets forecasting flatter declining energy prices, most uh, economists expect headline inflation to average a little under 2% in the coming year. And that's an outlook I agree with. I began with inflation just to emphasize that the behavior of inflation is fundamentally attributable to the actions of the central bank. In contrast, uh, real economic growth and labor market conditions are affected by a wide range of factors that are outside of the central bank's control. In fact, the effects of monetary stimulus on real output and labor market conditions is less than is widely thought. They consist uh, largely of the transitory byproducts of frictions that delay the timely adjustment of prices to monetary impulses. Attempts to overstimulate real economic activity via monetary policy can instead run the risk of raising inflation. Indeed, for reasons I will discuss later on, I see material upside risk to inflation in 2014 and beyond, given the current trajectory for monetary policy. Though my baseline outlook, I should emphasize, is uh, for inflation to move towards the Federal Reserve's long-run goal of 2% in coming years. Turning to the outlook for growth, the expansion in economic activity since the Great Recession officially bottomed out at the end of the second quarter of 2009 has been to many quite disappointing. Real gross domestic product, for example, uh, has risen at an average annual rate of 2.2% uh, during this recovery, and job growth has averaged about 140,000 jobs per month. 
Several factors appear to be impeding a more rapid recovery in the U.S. economy. First, the housing boom created a substantial oversupply of homes. And while significant progress is evident, we've not completely worked through that oversupply. New construction activity has been gradually improving, however, and home prices in many markets have bottomed out and are on the rise. Still, we should not expect a rapid rebound in housing uh, of the type that we've often seen in past recoveries. A second and related factor uh, in behind the slow recovery was the significant shift in economic activity away from industries related to residential construction. The rapid loss of jobs in these industries, layered on top of ongoing longer-run sectoral shifts, resulted in a large inflow of uh, workers into the ranks of un the unemployed and an adverse shift in the skill level of the unemployed as well. Now, this effect is typical in a recession, but it was larger this time because of the magnitude of the contraction we experienced. The need for capital investment and retraining as workers shift to new sectors has been slowing down the recovery in labor markets. Third, the Great Recession appears to have made many consumers more cautious and less willing to spend relative to their income and wealth. Households have become more apprehensive about their future income prospects and more interested in paying down financial obligations. So while consumer spending has grown during the recovery, the tempered pace of that growth has limited the overall pace of expansion compared to other recoveries. Finally, the, our fifth district business contacts have been emphasizing the uncertainty uh, that has caused them to delay hiring and investment commitments. These comments are echoed uh, in uh, reports by businesses to my colleagues around the country. The uncertainty that's on most everyone's mind is uh, the looming year-end fiscal cliff. The total size of the spending cuts and tax increases slated to take effect is large enough to be at least temporarily disruptive to economic activity, if not more so if the full brunt is borne. But even if Congress and the administration get us past the fiscal cliff and the debt ceiling, significant uncertainty will remain about the longer-run tax and spending paths that we're on, the broad regulatory realignments that are currently in train, and the uncertain prospects for European recovery. In, the, in short, the moderate nature of the, great, of the recent growth is understandable. In fact, if you look back at how other advanced economies have typically behaved following recessions associated with housing slumps, you'll find that the current U.S. recovery is actually not out of the ordinary. My best guess is that growth will continue into next year at an annual rate of about 2%. And that beyond 2003, we'll, we will see growth begin to firm. Several important suppositions lie behind this forecast. First, I expect to see meaningful progress on federal um, issues, federal budget issues, both short run, the fiscal cliff, and the longer run issue of the sustainability of our uh, fiscal policy. Second, I expect risks emanating from Europe to continue to diminish next year as they make progress towards new institutional arrangements and they emerge from the recession they're currently in. Third, my outlook is predicated on a gradual gains in household confidence, improvements in labor market effectiveness, and modest growth in home prices 
uh, should continue to reduce consumer apprehension about the downside risks and thereby bolster spending on the part of households. This outlook is not without risks, however. Significant energy price increases or an unexpected downturn in some major trading partners could temporarily reduce overall U.S. growth. On the other hand, a stronger than expected resurgence in confidence is not inconceivable. Rapid and convincing progress uh, towards fiscal sustainability, for example, might release a rush of pent-up spending. Even though growth has been below our long-run trend rate since the recession, I believe that the fundamental prospects for long-term growth in the United States remain quite strong. The flexibility and resilience of our markets, along with the relatively well-educated population, make this an advantageous place to implement innovations. One major challenge over the long haul is to find a more effective way of deepening the knowledge and skills of our people, because expanding our human capital is fundamental to improving our standards of living. What role does monetary policy play in this outlook? Our primary responsibility at the Federal Reserve is to keep inflation low and stable. This allows businesses and consumers to make economic decisions without needing to worry about what the price level is going to do over time. The Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, the body that determines monetary policy, took an important step to solidify confidence in its commitment to price stability with its January statement on longer-run goals and policy strategy. That document identified 2% inflation as measured by the annual change in the price index for personal consumption expenditures as most consistent over the longer run with its statutory mandate. Beyond satisfying our inflation mandate, however, it's not clear that monetary policy by itself can bring about any material improvement in economic growth right now. Nevertheless, at its meeting last week, the FOMC decided to continue the, the monthly purchases of $40 billion in agency mortgage-backed securities and $45 billion in longer-term U.S. Treasury securities. In my view, the supply of bank reserves is already large enough to support the economic recovery, and the benefits of further asset purchases are unlikely to be sizable. The effects on longer-term interest rates are uncertain, but I think balance of evidence suggests they're likely to be quite small. And the potential to boost job creation seems quite limited given the fundamental impediments that appear to be limiting growth right now. At the same time, it's important to recognize the potential costs of additional asset purchases. A larger Federal Reserve balance sheet will increase the risks associated with the timely and appropriate withdrawal of monetary stimulus through raising interest rates and selling assets when the time comes. While in principle, we will be able to raise rates or sell assets fast enough to avoid an outburst of inflation, the larger ba our balance sheet, the larger the, the consequences of small errors in that process. My assessment was that the costs associated with additional asset purchases outweighed the expected benefits, and thus I dissented. In its statement following last week's meeting, the FOMC said that, quote, in determining the size, pace, and composition of its asset purchases, it will, as always, take appropriate account of the likely efficacy and costs of such purposes. At the press conference following the meeting, 
Chairman Bernanke noted that, quote, if future evidence suggests that the program's effectiveness has declined or if potential unintended side effects or risks become apparent as the balance sheet grows, we will modify the pro program as appropriate. I anticipate that the committee will regularly reassess the benefits and costs of the asset purchases and make adjustments to the program as warranted. The committee also altered its description of its expectations regarding future interest rate changes, replacing the previous date-based forward guidance, think mid-2015, with guidance based on numerical thresholds. Specifically, the, the committee said that it anticipates that the current exceptionally low target range for the federal funds rate is likely to remain appropriate, quote, at least as long as the unemployment rate remains above 6.5%, the inflation rate over the next one to two years is projected to be no more than a half a percentage point above its 2% longer run goal, and longer term inflation expectations continue to be well anchored, unquote. I had dissented previously on the use of that date-based forward guidance, and so I supported the decision of the committee to drop such language at the December meeting. And I agree that it's useful for the committee to describe how its future actions are likely to depend on the evolving state of the economy. However, a single indicator cannot give us a complete picture of labor market conditions. More broadly, monetary policy has only a limited ability to improve the path of unemployment, and such effects as it does have are transient and generally short-lived. For these reasons, I believe that tying the federal funds rate to a specific numerical threshold for unemployment is inconsistent with a balanced approach to the FOMC's price stability and maximum employment mandates. I would have preferred to describe in qualitative terms the economic conditions under which our monetary policy stance is likely to change. Now, it is true that the committee's forward guidance contains a safeguard with respect to inflation in that keeping interest rates low requires that inflation is projected to remain close to our 2% objective and that inflation expectations remain well contained. Nevertheless, this sets up a potentially problematic tension between two competing commitments, one to price stability and the other to an unemployment rate threshold. These two commitments could well conflict because inflationary pressures can arise without triggering the Inflation Safety Clause. Indeed, February 1994 is an excellent case in point. In the past, we have had to act preemptively to head off incipient inflation pressures because reestablishing credibility after it's eroded is costly and economically quite damaging. The broader issue here is that disappointing labor market outcomes have motivated a search for how much stimulus can be provided and promised for the future without diminishing the Fed's credibility for price stability. Inflation's averaged quite close to two, our 2% 2 objective in recent years, but continuation of that record of success should not be taken for granted. We really do not know whether monetary policy can make a substantial difference in labor market outcomes now, and we may be attempting to achieve more rapid improvement than is feasible. We need to be careful that in our zeal to promise future stimulus, we do not constrain our way, ourselves in ways that endanger the price stability on which we've come to depend. Thank you. It's a pleasure to appear before you again this year.